My name is Dave Rooney. For those people I don't know, I uh, was a member of the pastoral nominating committee for all this time. And after many resumes, after many Zoom meetings, after many in-person meetings, um, it is my distinct blessing and pleasure to welcome and introduce um, and present to you Pastor Bob Myers and his wife Liz. Thirty-three years, and we were talking this morning. Like we're not used to being new. I was. At the, we were at the door, wanting to welcome you to CLC, and we're like, "Hey, um, they're meeting us and deciding whether this is a one-part series, <laughs> my first and last sermon here, or whether we come back or not." So, uh, but we feel Jesus in this place. Um, we feel Him, and we know that this is a church that He has built, is building. Uh, and we're so grateful, and even as the music team ministered today, wow, you are so blessed. Not just by the musical gifts there, but by us being ushered into the presence of Jesus. So that is what builds a church. That is what we're all about. Uh, and that is what we can all relax about, especially us this morning uh, as we prepare to enter his presence through the word. So you want to make a speech? I know you love speeches. <laughs> Not... <laughs> So I was thinking it would be presumptuous to begin a series because you get to decide whether it's a one-off or, or a series. Uh, and here's my framework for ministry. The most important thing is that we exalt Jesus. This is what he said. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to me. The second thing out of that is when Jesus is lifted up and people are drawn, there's a community formed. And the second part of that is build a healthy community. That's what flows out of who Jesus is. He makes us more healthy. He builds community. And before we do anything else, he does that. That's how he functions on the earth. And then the third thing is he sends us out to build awesome ministry that touches lives like no other institution or any other organization on the earth does. That's the, that's the mantle of the church. But if you get them reversed and you try to build ministry before you exalt Jesus or build community, you'll build something that might not represent him well. So I wanted to choose a, a text that uniquely, I thought, and especially exalted Jesus. And so I, I chose a text that I'm going to introduce to you in a moment, but that has been marveled at by the greatest intellects in the world and has been a subject for PhD discourses. At the same time, it's been memorized by four-year-olds it's a text that is often read by soldiers getting ready to go into battle, maybe facing their last moments, as well as comforting a young child who's simply afraid of the dark. We've all read it many times. We've not read it enough. We've read it gathered to bid farewell to a loved one who has departed this earthly life. Um, astronauts have been known to read this text before they're launched into space. It has been written down in virtually every language in the, in the known earth, often one of the first that is translated. It translated into more languages than could be recounted. And it may be the most, combination, the most powerful combination of words in all language ever joined together. And many people say that just this text by its existence in itself bears witness 
to the inspiration of this book, that it is God-breathed. It is not the idea and notion of a man. And the text I'm referring you to is the text of Psalm 23. Uh, One preacher, Henry Beecher, called it this. He said, the 23rd Psalm is the nightingale bird of the Psalms. It is small, of homely feather, singing shyly out of obscurity, but it has filled the air of the whole world with a melodious joy greater than the heart can conceive. Blessed be the day on which this psalm was born. And we're going to put these words on the screen, and I'm going to invite you, if you're able to, to stand and let's unite all of our voices as we read together this, the very word of God. Psalm 23. Let's begin together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, you gave these words not as an end in themselves, but as a means for us to know you, the author. And so we pray, Lord, that you would just make yourself known. You were the God who said, let light shine out of darkness and created this whole universe. And you were the God, Lord, who can shine that light, your powerful light, into our hearts to show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of yourself in Jesus' face. And so we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We invite you to minister to us. We invite you to compose and edit everything I would say that only that which is according to your frame and your will would go forth. And only that would be remembered to build us up and that we would know that we have been in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first sentence of this psalm, you could spend hours on it. We're, we're going to board a flight to see our daughter in Kenya, and there are two wings to that flight. Uh, we first fly eight out, six hours uh, from Newark to uh, Heathrow in London. I could spend, if, if someone was sitting next to me, I could spend that entire flight just talking about half of the first verse. The Lord is. That's the most important reality in the whole universe. And then we, we are going to pick up a plane in Heathrow, and we're going to take that plane uh, from London to Nairobi, and then I could spend the rest of it, the Lord is my shepherd. And the reason I could do that is because there have never been a, more, a greater contrast put together in any sentence. The Lord. The first word of this psalm is Yahweh. A, a word held with such reverence it was not even allowed to be pronounced. 
the God who gives us life and breath, uh, the exalted God without whom nothing exists that exists, Yahweh. The Lord is, and you would expect him then next to say something, exalted king of the universe. But that's not what he says. He takes us to the most lowly place, to the most grimy, disreputable, entry-level job of a shepherd. He doesn't even say the Lord is an, is an earthly king. That would be an, an, an infinite demotion. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And here what he's, he is broadcasting to us, that this God who holds our breath and everything in his hands is so exquisitely personal that he tends to us like a shepherd. You know what a shepherd does? A shepherd does everything for a group of sheep that are completely dependent upon them. Uh, you know, sheep and a shepherd don't say... Um, hey, it's a 50-50 proposition. We'll plan this part of our life and you plan this part of our life. No, 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 no. The shepherd takes care of absolutely everything. It's the all-inclusive plan. Where you travel, where you sleep, how you're tended, where you seek refuge, how you're protected from enemies, how you get through your darkest moments. And you know that all of us, all of us are looking for that. All of us are, are wanting someone to take care of us, something that we can rely upon and get to. And, and the only other alternative to still looking, kind of we're like a cell phone on Rome, looking for where can we find that, is to be a person who's completely given up and just said, well, nobody's going to take care of me, so I'll be my own shepherd. And that doesn't work out. Neither of those things work out very well. And so this first sentence of, of the this, this psalm, it is meant to rock our world. Pretend like you've never heard it before. The Lord is your shepherd. Let it rock you. I don't know whether you heard uh, this account uh, about uh, Pope Francis, but he was on his way to a UN meeting. He was going to fly into LaGuardia, and his plane got diverted to Newark Airport. And he was going to be late for his appointment and so he got a limousine driver and he said we're gonna have to you know pedal to the metal to get me to the UN on time uh, unbeknownst to him though this particular limousine um, group and this particular driver had received so many tickets because it was common for celebrities to land in Newark Airport on their way to New York and they just thought they were above the law and they would just tell the limousine drivers all the time, you know, pedal the metal, I'm important, we gotta get there, we gotta get there on my schedule. And so the limousine driver said, you know, your honor, holy father, I, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I just can't obey you on this because if I get one more ticket, I not only am gonna lose my license and my career, but I actually could go to prison. And so Pope Francis turned to me and he says, all right, switch seats, I'm driving. <laughs> so Pope hops in the car and, and he's going down, you know, 78 up 95, pedal to the floor, you know, passing cars right and left. And he, and he comes right upon this speed trap and there is this trooper sitting there and this trooper has just told his understudy. He said, I have had it with these celebrities who traveled up 95, going, you know, 85, 90 miles an hour. And I'm telling you, I do not care who is sitting in the back seat of these limousines. 
that I am going to throw the book at them. We are going to stop them. We are going to take them into the station. We are going to book them, and I don't care. I'm tired of this, this sense of these people invoking their celebrity status. And so Pope, whoosh. So he's off. Both lights flaring, lights sound. You know. So Pope has to pull over, and, and he says, I'm going to let him have it. And the, tr- the, the head trooper goes up to the car. He takes one look in, and, and to his understudy's amazement, this trooper just kind of apologizes, I'm so sorry, waves him on, and he takes off. And his understudy says, you just told me it didn't matter who that was. Who, who was that? Was this like some incredible power that be? Was it, was it the mayor of New York? Says, oh, no, 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 much, much more powerful than the mayor. Uh, was, was it the governor? He goes, no, much, much more powerful than any politician. Well, was it, was it some athlete that, like, you were afraid, like, you know, Curry disfavor? Was it, was it some, oh, no, no, much more powerful than any athlete, any celebrity, any politician. He goes, well, then, then tell me, tell me, who was it? And he says, I have no idea who it was, but the Pope was his driver. <laughs> My friends, That is but a very dim statement compared to the statement that we just read together. If the Lord is the driver of our lives, it changes our status. You know, if you're a golfer and you were on the golf court and you said, Tiger Woods is my caddy, people would be a little impressed and probably a little skeptical. (laughs) If you were getting your finances going over and you said uh, Warren Buffett put my portfolio together people might be a little impressed but those statements pale in comparison to this statement that the Lord is your shepherd the Lord of the universe would come down and he would take care of everything and you know what, what the, it says if the Lord is your shepherd the first statement he says he says I shall not want it means that you have such confidence in the provision of the shepherd of course it it means that if jesus isn't providing it you don't want it because you recognize his wisdom but it but it, it also means that you're not looking to anybody else to take care of you ultimately you want everything to pass through his hands uh when jesus is functioning as your shepherd it makes you a low maintenance person You know, we aspire to be low-maintenance people. Uh, How many of us hope that we meet more people in our lives who are high-maintenance? How many of us just wish that person in our family would, you know, require a little more maintenance from us? We recognize it in others, right? This is what the grace of Jesus, when he's functionally in charge of our life, does. He makes us low-maintenance people. Um, He makes us people who become so satisfied we've got something to give to other people we're we're not always on the take for other people Um, this psalm is called by scholars of the psalms a confidence psalm and and what it means is it's a psalm that installs god in his rightful place of of reigning and tending to our lives and it puts us in that place of just contented confidence you know what one of the reasons i chose it is because it's, it's primarily an individual psalm about our personal life because you can only come to Jesus personally. You don't get to come to him in a group. 
You don't just join a church and all of a sudden know Jesus. No, you got to go directly to Jesus individually. But when the people of a church, of, a, of any community, are gathered and they exude this kind of confidence, there is an uplift of joy. There is, there is an uplift of grace. And um, I love what I'm learning of CLC. You've got some really good organization. And that's awesome. That's important. You've got some excellent outward-facing ministry and good strategies. Strategies are really important. And you're committed to sound teaching from the Bible. You're committed to good doctrine. That's really, really important. I'm passionate about all three of those things, especially being committed to the Bible because it'll correct everything else, right? But it's possible to have good doctrine on paper, good organization, good strategies, and yet it's not alive and you're not living out the uplift of joy and confidence and the kind of low-maintenance flow that, that makes church a culture of safety, of welcome, uh, of a place that is powerfully exuding that confidence. And that's what this psalm's designed to do. It's to build a culture of confidence, a, a joyful sense on our hearts that we are completely secure and we are well provided of. If this is functioning in your life, one way you can know you're a, a, a low-maintenance person is you don't require other people to be perfect. I mean, you know that you're not because you're just a sheep. <laughs> but when the Lord is your shepherd, you don't need other people, you don't need your friends to be perfect to be friends with them. You don't need your spouse to be perfect, and you don't need your church to be perfect. Lord knows it won't be. <laughs> because you're not needy. You're, your needs ultimately are met by the great shepherd. You know, there's only ultimately one great shepherd. <laughs> there's only ultimately only one pastor who's perfect that we need, and, and that is Jesus. And so the Lord is my shepherd. It infuses us with that, with that kind of that lack of neediness. And I know sometimes we have needs. I mean, my wife has learned back when we used to go to the mall instead of Amazon, you know, that, hey, if she feeds me an Auntie Anne's pretzel, I've got a lot more endurance for the shopping. I am a more cheerful camper. I am patient. I mean, that car brush, it's great. But there is, there is something in our spirits that will never be where we need to be in, unless Jesus is installed in that way. Now, the first thing it describes the shepherd of doing is making us rest. And it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, this is really important because the context of this psalm in the ancient Near East is it only rained about half of the year. The other half of the year, no rain. And that half of the year was very challenging to find green grass. But what's interesting about this verse is it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you know that sheep never eat lying down? Um, they only eat standing up. So when he says lie down in green pastures, what he's talking about is the second feeding. This is a little indelicate uh, if you're not a farmer around livestock, but the second feeding is uh, sheep have this capacity with certain other animals. They kind of regurgitate what they ate on the first helping <laughs> and they chew it over again. The Lord knows something about us. He knows that ultimately all of us are a bit slow on the process that we really process life, relationships, who God is 
in the place of reflection, in the place of rest. And, and so it says that he makes me lie down um, in green pastures. There's that place of rest. Yeah, we stand to eat, but we lie down to digest and process. The Lord, one of the things the Lord may be saying to some of you is just like, you're taking on too much. Your schedule's too prompt. You know, Americans are one of the only people in the world who don't take all their vacation days. They don't take all the vacation days that their employer would give them. I will tell you something I've learned. I take the vacation days and rest that are allotted to me as a pastor. You know why? Because it makes me a better pastor, a better father, a better husband, a better person. And this is something God knows. He makes us lie down in green pastures. The next thing we read is that he leads me by quiet, still waters. Do you know that it's, it's been shown that sheep, even if their, their tongues are wagging out of their mouths because they're thirsty, they will not drink in rough waters. They can be absolutely parched, but it, it spooks them. And they won't stop and they won't dip to drink. Now, the water doesn't have to be absolutely placid, but it's got to be still. It's got to be still enough that they can approach it. And this is so true. We can only really drink at a place where there's enough unity and there's, there's enough peace that we can have the vulnerability to drink in what God has for us. And, and then the next frame also speaks of his exquisite, exquisite care. It says, and he restores my soul. I was talking to a dear friend who's a pastor's wife once and she said, you know, all the conversations, all the people, all the ministries, whatever, he says, I just wish there could be something that really reminded me that I have a soul. I have a soul that God made that will never die. I have this soul by which I I process life. I love the loves of my life. I, I, I rid and ward off the anxieties of life. And it says here that God restores our soul. And that, that word for restore actually comes from the word repentance. And it means that God helps bring our soul to that place of, of repentant trust. It's, it's where we relax in God's presence and we get rid of the things that divert our energies. And I love this because um, in Romans chapter two, Paul says, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Repentance is not a scolding ourselves. It's, it's not working ourselves into guilt or shame about our sins. But repentance is when we've so tasted the kindness of God. We often reverse repentance and think that, well, I gotta repent to get God to like me. If I repent, God will be kind to me. But the Bible says it's exactly the opposite. When we experience the kindness of God, we relent and we give up all the things that are distorting and diverting our energies in our life. And it says, he restores my soul by the quiet waters. See, the, great, the greatest problem with, with our sin is not that it puts us in the disfavor of God, but that it causes us to run away from the love and the provision of God. Oh, may, may this church be a place where people find their souls restored. The most dangerous thing to the devil about CLC Church, I can tell you this, is that it would be a place where people discover how infinitely they are loved by God. If, if this is the place that people discover that, that's what terrifies the devil. That's his whole propaganda campaign to convince us it's not that way. But here this psalm says he... He guides me in green pastures. He makes me lie down. He leads me by still waters. He, he restores my soul. And then the psalm gets a little darker. It's not just our regular everyday needs, but it's our 
greatest challenges, and it says, even though, that little statement, even though, do you have an even though faith this morning? Because this section of scripture tells us that even when Jesus is in absolute charge of your life, there's an even though. There are green pastures, but there's also dark valleys. And it says, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, for a shepherd, the valley was the place of vulnerability. It was a place, you didn't camp out there. You didn't lie down there. It was a place you had to move through. It was a place where there could be bobcats or cougars or uh, it could be flash floods. It was a place where a shadow was cast by the mountains on each side. And so uh, he says here is a place where he is shepherded. And the psalm takes a real turn because you'll notice in this verse when it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil and he says, for, and he changes the whole interaction with God. He stops talking about God, and he talks to God. Do you notice that in our text? If you put verse 4 up there on the, on the monitor, you'll see this. Up till now, it's been, he makes me lie down, he guides me to still waters, he restores my soul. But you get in the valley, and he's, and he's stopped talking about God. He's talking to God. Do you know the difference? It's like the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. When you no longer are talking about God because you know some things about him and you are talking directly to God face to face. And, and so the whole, the whole psalm changes here because he says, when I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You're a rod and you're a staff. All of a sudden, he's all focused on, on God directly, no middle person. Because that is who God is in those darkest times. He leads us in those tender moments. And he shepherds us so exquisitely. He guides me and paths of righteousness for his namesake, but then he leads me and he, and he becomes so personal. This is the moment when we're rendered in the, in the most helpless way. And I, I love this verse because it says, when you know the shepherd, you can face even death itself. You know, we live in a culture increasingly that cannot talk about or face death. And yet it is one of the absolute certainties for every person that has ever been born, there is a time, it may be further off than we would imagine, or it may be closer in than we ever could have imagined, but it is an appointment with death that has been true of every person who's walked the planet except for one, Jesus. Death did not have any appointment for him, and death could not make an appointment with, with Jesus. But Jesus, out of love for his sheep, made an, a pursuit, an appointment for death, and he went after death. Jesus is the only one who ultimately 100% volunteered to die. The best the rest of us can do in some of the incredible heroism we're seeing in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, is because people are volunteering to put their lives on the line for their families and their country. But they can't ultimately volunteer for death. They're just volunteering to die a little earlier than they would have died otherwise. They don't even know how much earlier. Jesus did not owe nature a death. He says in John 10, when he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own authority. He's the only one who is a match for death. 
The only way you and I can face death, and the reason no culture really can face death, is that we're not created to make peace with death. Death is an enemy to be destroyed. It's not God's original design. But what the Bible tells us is that if we make peace with Jesus, who defeated death, then we can face death face on, not because we have peace with death, but we have peace with the only God who is able to get us to the other side of death. And one day, death comes to take us. And most all of us, if you live long, death has taken beloved ones from us. But here's the glorious thing about this psalm. It tells us that though death came for our loved one through cancer, through illness, through a horrible accident, but that Jesus comes to take that loved one from death, and one day he will come for us. And so we don't have to be paralyzed by the thought of death. We can talk about death. We can plan for death because we know that there is one greater than death and because we have peace with him. We can say in the midst of death, we can turn that experience into a prayer and say, God, I know you're with me. You're riding your staff. You comfort me. You lead me to the other side of this. Isn't that good news? If the Lord is our shepherd, we can go to the very bottom of our deepest, deepest fears. And it does not topple us. Not because we're so strong, not because we're rocks, but because our feet are standing on the only rock, the only one who can defeat and obliterate death. And his name is Jesus. And so this kind of ends this pastoral image in the psalm of a sheep walking a trail. And he shifts the image into a king and a king as the host at a table. You know the next verse, verse five, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it's saying, if you know Jesus is the shepherd of your life, if he's functioning that way, you are invited to the king's table. And I love what it says about the king and his table. I imagine the king's snacks were really good. But imagine what happens when the king gets a prepared table. I mean, we all know how it is in our own homes, right? Sometimes we just want macaroni and cheese and the quick things, even give the blue boxes good, whatever. But we all know what it's like when there's a lot of preparations going on. And the preparations mean something special is about ready to be unleashed. I I remember as a child, I always knew when the fine china is going to come down, when you've got, you know, the desserts all decorated with the whipped cream and the pies are being laid out. Oh, don't touch them before you're ready, right? Before they tell you you can. But, you know, and, and you've, you've got everything is ready for some special event and it's, it's duration and it's, it's impact. And, oh, my, the leftovers are going to be glorious. And here he's saying, if you are Jesus' sheep, he is preparing a feast And he wants it to go on and on and on. And it says that this feast, this intimacy with the king, is it's greater than even the battles you face. I love how it's it's a description almost like the table's unfurled, the the linen tablecloth is put on it, the china's brought out, and there's a battle raging. I, I have seen this as a pastor happen right in the midst of people facing death. 
I could tell you story after story after story of individuals who knew there was no physical medical way out, and yet as they welcomed people around, they enjoyed fellowship with their God and fellowship with their loved ones around them, and there was, there was this sense of unpunctured peace and hope and fullness and love and even joy around them. I've experienced that when my own heart was breaking for the loss of a loved one and there was a radiance coming down. And this is what he's, he's describing here and he says that the, the king even anoints his head with oil. This was something really especially needed in the ancient Near East. It's so dry there. But I want you to note the personal sense of this. He says, you anoint my head with oil. I want to ask you, uh, how many people in your life are there? who could apply lotion to your face? How many people, how many relationships do you have with people? You know, we all kind of have our boundaries of space, right? But how many people in your life are there who, like you could apply the lotion to their face, to their head? This is exquisitely personal. And it's saying, if you know God as your shepherd, then you'll be welcomed at the king's table and that there will be an anointing on your life that comes from this personal acquaintance with Jesus. Sometimes people think of anointing as spiritual power, and I believe it is. But there is no spiritual power apart from intimacy with Jesus. It's why the most important thing that any of us do to serve anybody is to pursue an intimacy with Jesus, because out of intimacy with Jesus comes our anointing. Out of pursuing Jesus, he says, I'm the vine, You're, you are the branches. And friendship with the king in this intimate relationship with Jesus is, is of greater weight than any battle that you could face. And he says, you anoint my head with oil. And then this next image, I think it's sometimes been misunderstood. He says, my cup overflows. I want to ask, I think we've got some middle schoolers here. I want to ask a couple volunteers from middle school to come join me on the stage here. I promise you don't have to give any speeches. You don't have to do any stunts. Can I get a couple volunteers? They're saying, who is this new crazy guy? Um, if I don't give volunteers, I might draft you. You won't regret it, I promise you. And it's, I mean, yes, you, come on up. And somebody else. Brave. I need two of you. What's your name? You pick somebody. You draft Jason. them. Jason. Pick one of your friends. They'll be, they'll, they won't be mad at you. Well, <clears throat> is that Caleb over there? Can I pick? Do I see Caleb? So I won't really. You'll get to be on the camera. You look really good. Come on up. Oh, you're so afraid. Let's see. How about Adam? Is Adam here? You pop up here, Adam. Adam and I became friends. We got talking a little bit. All right, Adam and Jason. So we're going to pretend you're at my house. Okay, okay and um, you know how it is when you have company? Now, um, I know, don't get, the PNC's getting really nervous now. They're saying, oh, he survived the Q&A, and now he's serving wine to underage kids. He will never make the vote. Um, this is a disaster. No, this is sparkling apple juice. And we all know how it is when you have people in your home, and my wife and I love to have people in our home, but sometimes we've had people in our home, and you begin to tell their life story, and it gets to midnight, and they're at like 1941. 
you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's going to be a long night. And, and so, and they'll be saying, hey, uh, you, you know, you got any refills? And when that happens in that situation, um, Jason, you can be an example. There's somebody who you're like, hey, I think we're, I think we've had quite enough time. You just lift this glass up a little bit and uh, they want a refill. That's the refill they get. That's all they get. Because it's like, it's time, you know, we're going to go to bed so you can go home. So time to go home. But then it's like, Adam here, and we're just delighting in conversation. And we're, we're so connected and enjoying things that Adam wants something. And we just kind of fill and fill and fill. I know I don't want to stain this rug. I'll, that'll be my legacy. Um, and we fill that glass. Because you know how it is when you want someone to stay you just don't want the event to ever end. And that's the image of this. It's saying that if you're an invited guest at the Lord's table, he's invited you to a banquet and he never wants you to go home. You know how there are guests who come and they're like bringing suitcases and you're like, how long are you staying? The Lord says, no, bring it all. Bring it all. Thank you, gentlemen. You can take that. You can even keep the wine glasses and you can sip on that. Or pass that, pass that on to somebody else. And I know we're... Can I say something? You want to say something? Yeah. Okay, we are so spontaneous. So, yeah, I'll tell you what, after the service, you come up and we'll pray together. But I want you to take this as our gift and let's give them an applause and thank them. I hope they won't forget that, but I hope you won't forget it either. That the banquet that the Lord invites you to... He wants you to never leave. He wants you to stay forever and ever and ever. We all know there's people like that in their hospitality. I know when I would visit my grandparents, I never had to ask for a second helping of mashed potatoes. It just appeared. Because it was like, I never want this to end. When our kids come home, we never want it to end. My wife is a tremendous cook. And like the food just keeps coming and coming and coming because he never wants it to end. And this is the last verse where he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's not just suitcases the Lord wants us to bring with us. He says, bring the moving truck. I want you to move in. I want to be roommates with you for all eternity. I want to live in the same terrain. This is the love of God. And he says, goodness and mercy will pursue you. It's not just follow after you passively. It's like two sheepdogs, one named goodness, one named mercy. And it, God has basically put them in our lives to drop tokens of his goodness and his mercy in our life. There's not been a day we've lived without goodness and mercy flowing into our life day after day after day. And that's, that's what it means to have Jesus as your shepherd. I want to close by just asking you two questions here. And the first one is, who's driving in your life? Who's driving your life? This psalm says there's only one answer that ultimately can sustain us, and that is the Lord is your shepherd. If you've entered this room today and you'd say, I don't really, I've never asked Jesus, I've never turned over the keys and the driver's seat, and I've never turned it over, let this be the time that you respond and say, Lord, in light of the incredible banquet, in light of the provision, in light of dying the death I never could die, 
in Jesus. I ask you to be the driver of my life. I want to ask you, if you've never done that for the very first time, that you might do that now and respond. If you want to even come up later, we'd, I'd love to pray with you personally or find one of the staff or leaders here to pray with you. But then secondly, for all of us, I want to say, let's renew our confidence in the Lord. This season that we've been through, from the pandemic, from so many other things, can sometimes cause our confidence in the Lord to take a hit. And there's no reason for that. And Jesus would invite us anew and afresh to say, come to me and, and let me restore the uplift of joy, of confidence, of being a low-maintenance person who has so much grace flowed into your life that you've got a lot of grace to show everyone else, especially people who don't know Jesus as their shepherd. And let's walk this out so that the world will know that we have had our status changed, our status in all respects, because the Lord, Jesus, the Lord God who made us, is the one who's driving our lives. Let's pray together. A great God who inspired these words, but who also embodies these words and is this God for us today. We are so thankful you did not say the Lord was a shepherd, but you said the Lord is. And so we come to you, Lord, and we bring our broken and tattered lives into your very presence. We would especially pray, Lord, that you would just win, woo, and, and lure anyone here who has never laid down the keys of their life and let you do the driving. Lord, that you would move them to do that even for the very first and decisive time today. And we pray, Lord, for all the rest of us, Lord, that we would walk out in, in the peace, the joy, the composure, the beautiful poise that comes to us because Jesus is really functioning in that driver's seat and he takes care of everything. Lord, we pray now we go into a time of response in song, and we just pray that you would continue to press the sweet truths of this passage into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.